Good morning, FCBC Walnut family, friends, all of you that are worshiping with us online. Today we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And so I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. It is a joy to continue this series on renewal in Shangation so that we can prepare ourselves for how the Lord is leading us in reopening, regathering, and returning as a spiritual household with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. I want to begin with a definition that Pastor Hanley referenced last week to kick off the series so that we can find our bearings in terms of where we are headed. Mark Sayers defined renewal in his book, Reappearing Church, as the refreshment, release, and advancement that individuals, groups, churches, and cultures experience when they are realigned with God's presence. And the starting point where all those categories of people converge is in the home. Today, we're going to put our stakes down and camp out there through the instructions that God gave to a wandering generation of Israelites about to enter the promised land so that we may examine the hearts and habits in our homes and surrender them to God. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us in this season where our church family's life can be examined and where we can be honest about our relationship with you personally and corporately. We pray for your Holy Spirit to open up the scriptures to us so that we can see how true renewal connects to the work of Christ and that he is the only means of transformation and source of validation for our souls. We pray specifically for our hearts to be sensitive to the arena where each of us calls home. May you give us hope in your mighty power to change lives in the midst of challenging circumstances, and may the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen be the staff that we set or gaze upon when we sit in our house, walk by the way, lie down, and when we rise. In Christ's beautiful name I pray. Amen. Let us go ahead and read this morning's scripture passage together from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Please rise. The scripture is in your notes, and it's also going to be, well, it's in your notes. It's also in your word. I'll go ahead and read for us. Please listen with open hearts. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Please be seated. That was the word of the Lord. The passage we just read is one that many theologians say is the most important prayer for the Jewish people in their religious tradition. It is commonly known as the Shema, and contained within this short exhortation are three sections. The first is verse 4, where Moses makes a definitive declaration regarding who God is. The second can be found in verse 5, where he commands the Israelites to respond by keeping the law as the people of God. The third relates to how it looks in everyday life, especially as it pertains to parents as primary disciple-makers in the home. 
If you look at this passage at a quick glance, it goes from the shortest to the longest in terms of length. And from my experience, the teaching emphasis tends to focus on the last part as well, since it provides a list of applications for people to do. However, if you are part of the wandering nation of Israel, camped out in Moab, about to go into the promised land after 40 long years, the section that sets them apart as a people and will provide lasting motivation for covenant keeping and personal and corporate renewal is actually the first. Verse 4. So instead of focusing primarily on the longest section and text, we will take the passage in the way that Moses had intended and allowed the uniqueness of Yahweh to move us to a heart response that manifests and renews itself daily in words and actions, beginning in our homes. So let us look at verse 4 more closely. The Shema begins with, Hear, O Israel. That is actually what Shema means, to listen and pay attention. Let's not forget who we are talking to and where they are at at this time. It has now been 40 years since the Exodus, and this is the second generation of Israelites with a third generation of children among them on the cusp of entering the Promised Land. They are camped out on the plains of Moab right across the Jordan River from Canaan, the land of milk and honey. There are many challenges to come in order to conquer the land from the pagan nations while fending off the many foreign temptations that could lead to compromise. These are the reasons why Moses wrote Deuteronomy, or second law, to remind them of who they are through the retelling of who Yahweh is, what he has done, and the call to renew covenant keeping with God as the highest priority. The main statement made in verse 4 is this. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is a lot more words in English than the original Hebrew. As a result, you'll find this footnote in many Bible translations, maybe even some in your hands right now, with alternatives that say, the Lord our God is one Lord, or the Lord our God, the Lord alone. When you look at the miraculous history of Israel up to that point, all of these translations make perfect sense. It can be argued to be valid, because God is all of those things to the people who are now about to see his promises fulfilled. In Genesis, we see that there's one creator God who made human beings from dust, and these image bearers rebelled against him. But in God's goodness, he promised a coming savior while he also provided covering for them. God then made an unconditional promise to Abraham that he will be a father to many, even in his old age, And his descendants became the patriarchs who escaped to Egypt and were preserved. In Exodus, you find the one sovereign God with no equal that miraculously delivered his people from Egyptian rule and pagan worship. He divinely appointed an unqualified and hesitant leader in Moses who rose to intercede and mediate on behalf of the Israelites through their major lapses in faithfulness, including the golden calf. His purpose for the Israelites can be found in Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples. For all the nation, all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In Leviticus, you find one holy God who gave laws to his people so they knew how to live and love and worship their Redeemer. 
in Numbers, you find one delivering God who sustained all of their needs, protected them from their enemies, and dwelt in their midst in the tabernacle as they wandered, seemingly aimlessly at times, for 40 years. God was always there in Numbers, and without him, the Israelites would perish. We now come to Deuteronomy, where then you find the one covenant-keeping God who is a consuming fire that demands complete loyalty and pure worship because he is the one God who redeemed them. The chapters preceding today's passage prepares them for absolute allegiance because it reminds the Israelites that without God, they would not be here. Don't forget this. And that he is the one that preserved them for his good pleasure and purpose. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is our Lord, the Lord alone. Every single one of these translations are true. It would ring true to the ears and to the hearts of these Israelites as they honestly reflect on the plans and the works of Yahweh in their lives. They were each made by God in his image to be in fellowship with him. Their national identity was crafted by God through endless accounts of supernatural miracles and everyday mercies. Their way of life, politics, festivals, sacrifices were given to them personally as a blueprint from heaven to their leader, Moses, who is still there leading them. There is no other God. Yahweh is God alone. The Lord is one. He is the only one for the people of Israel. One of my favorite worship songs growing up, I hesitate to say a children's song, although it's kind of been boxed in that place, but really it's just a song that I learned as a youth. It goes something like this. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big, so strong, so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his, the rivers are his, the stars are his handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. This is the experience of the nation of Israel. They are on the ground. They have experienced this. They have seen this, and they are now still following this mediator leader to fulfill the promises of their one God. This is the reason why it became the one statement summary of their identity, this particular verse. The children of the Lord, their God, who is one, this God is second to none. You know, sometimes it's harder for us in our individualist culture to identify with that sense of corporate identity and oneness. But you know, we're in the season of the Olympics right now, so probably now will be one of those times in which we learn things and we feel things and we see things as a corporate identity that is bigger than us and that maybe we don't usually often give much thought to. Pride in one's country, a corporate identity that's bigger than an individual. You find superstars, millionaires, celebrities who are playing for the name in front of their jerseys, going through all of the things that every other athlete goes through 
to represent their country. You hear about Olympic lore, traditions, pioneers, triumphs, the images, music, merchandise, and memories fill our feeds. The history and journey of your people, your country, the people you root for, it gets relived and remembered. It's not about the individual, even though many individuals will become known, but it's about your nation. It's about your culture. It's about your country. So we come a little closer to maybe what this is supposed to mean for an Israelite. And even in this multimedia-soaked and tech-savvy age, where we have access to any information that we want at the push of a button or even a word, we are still forgetful of so much history, aren't we? I feel like I learn something new every single time the Olympics come around, even if it's hearing it for the second or third or fourth time. That's why I do love this time, because there's so much that I learn about our highlights, about our people, about our traditions, and that R could be a variety of places. It makes sense then why God inspired Moses to write Deuteronomy, so that this generation, 40 years after the exodus from Egypt, they can renew their collective narrative of the goodness of God in their existence and the glory of God in their mission. If the, Lord of, if the Lord their God is the one, how then should God's people Israel respond? Moses extorts, exhorts Israelites with the following command in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He couldn't put enough words there. Love the Lord your God, in other words, with everything. Everything that you are, everything that you have, everything that represents you, everything that you can muster. Not the bare minimum, not what you can get away with, not pushing the envelope without getting in trouble, not grudgingly or joyously, but with the word love as being the descriptor. And the reason why love is used is because God wants a relationship with his people. This relationship is expressed in the form of a covenant, which can only be held together by a proactive and living and growing love. In Deuteronomy 5, the chapter right before this, Moses writes the following, starting in verse 1. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, or Mount Sinai. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The whole book of Deuteronomy exists so that this present generation who are about to cross the Jordan and fulfill their mission by conquering what God has promised them will commit to an active and vibrant relationship with God as a people first. Moses was specific to say that the law as expressed in the Mosaic Covenant was made with this particular group of people personally, not just with previous generations. Therefore, God's expectation is that if he is the one, then his people will respond to the covenant he initiated by keeping the law that he has given so that they can be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests 
and a holy nation. Joyful obedience is the nature of covenant keeping and also the expression of love. When the Bible speaks about the relationship between God and his people, the power dynamic between them is clear. God is king, his people are his subjects. God reigns, his people are the ruled. God saves, his people are the redeemed. God provides, his people are the beneficiaries. God is holy, his people reflect that holiness. God is glorious, and his people give him glory. That connection, that relationship is abundantly clear. It is no accident then that Moses follows the call to covenant keeping in Deuteronomy 5 with a restatement of the Ten Commandments to remind them of the centrality of God in everything they do and how they should live. Committing to a relationship with God is more than just feelings or circumstances, and it is greater than culture or traditions. It is rooted and anchored in a growing love for God that comes from the humble recognition and embracing of who God is, what he has done, and his love for you. Earlier this week, a story came out about an incident that took place in the airport in Atlanta. Carlos Whitaker, a Christian author and speaker, shared this heartwarming and amazing story that he was personally involved in while he was traveling through that airport. These are his words in an interview with CNN. I was super bummed that morning and had to reroute to Atlanta. As I was walking through the concourse, I heard someone playing the piano, and I just had to walk by them. That man was Tony Valentine Carter. After listening to Carter play for an hour and a half, he had an idea. Whitaker continues by saying this, suddenly I was like, what would happen if I asked my Instagram followers if we could give him the biggest tip he's ever gotten? And he said, within 30 minutes, we had raised $10,000. What he did is he went live on Instagram and he just told the story and people started memoing in. By the time I landed in Nashville, Whitaker continued, it was 20,000. And by the time I interviewed him for my podcast that night, it was 44,000. And as of this conversation, it was at 61,000. And this was a couple of days after what happened. Valentine said this, I just lost it. I thought he was kidding. I just couldn't believe it. That just doesn't happen, Carter told CNN. I didn't know how to feel. This is the kind of thing that I do. I love giving and donating and helping people, but I never expected someone to do it for me. He continues, it had me crying for days, not because of the total, but because of the individual donations. He continued, I looked through all the donations and saw so many that were 50 cents, $1, $2. My heart palpated because I knew they were giving me what they had. People were giving out of love. Carter concludes then with his response because Whitaker wanted to know. He said this, that 60,000, it is not mine. It's money that's going to go to others. There is only one way to say thank you because words are inadequate and that is to pay this forward. There is a uniqueness to how Moses expressed covenant keeping that sets it apart from a list of do's and don'ts. 
he digs deeper into the motivation and grounds it in love in response to gratitude. The fire and fuel of covenant keeping is wholehearted devotion driven by the desire to do the best for the object of your love. It is not what you have to do. It is what you get to do. It is not just an obligation to keep. It is an opportunity to pursue. It might look the same, but your motive makes all of the difference. Well, by the time Jesus came into the world, the Shema was the central teaching of Judaism. In Mark 12, a scribe came to Jesus in the midst of a robust conversation and asked, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered in verse 29, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And ye shall love the Lord your God with all our hearts and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment greater than these. To which you see the scribe then heartily affirm, saying, you are right, teacher. Good for him to know as the scribe. But what's interesting is Jesus' response to him in verse 34. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Let that sink in for a moment. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Wait a minute, Jesus. What do you mean he's not far from the kingdom of God? He gave the right answer. He agreed. He affirmed. Isn't he smack dab in the middle of the kingdom of God? What do you mean he's not far with that answer? Well, things changed when Jesus came. Do you remember Pastor Hanley's sermon last week when he shared about the golden calf incident in Exodus 32 leading to Moses climbing Mount Sinai to intercede on behalf of his people? Certainly many in this generation from Deuteronomy were alive then. As the people's mediator was in the presence of God, he asked to see God face to face, to show him his glory. Do you remember God's response? God said, no. The response can be found in Exodus 33:20, where God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The reason why is because Moses was a sinful human being, and Yahweh, the great I am, is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, and cannot have fellowship with sin. Instead, God hid Moses in the cleft and passed by him with his goodness. It is beautiful that the glory of God is demonstrated through and tied to his goodness. Let's keep that in mind and jump forward to the time of Christ, who came, according to Romans 5, 6, at just the right time in world history. Even though sinful people cannot see God in his glory face to face, John 1.14 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Because we could not go to God in our sinfulness, God sent his Son to come to us in his perfection. The scribe was close 
to the kingdom of God, but not in it by the same reason because he was a sinner like the rest of us. So he could not keep the law perfectly, even if he knew what was necessary, even to the point of being able to teach it to others. James makes it clear in James 2.10 and illustrates it with commandments 6 and 7 in verse 11. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So you see how that goes. Unless there's an absolutely immaculate keeping of the law, then we are all in the same boat. So God kept the Israelites near to him through the sacrificial system that provided the means of reconciliation through atonement. However, as important as the law is to reflect what is good and pleasing to God, they cannot change the heart. And we who fundamentally are a sinful human being bent on selfishness and worldly gain, we need more. We need something more permanent. We need something more internal. The law ultimately condemns as it holds up a mirror of our sinfulness. We have to look to something or someone else for true transformation from the inside out. In Old Testament prophecy, in Isaiah foretold the coming of the Lord in the form of a person, the Messiah. His life and ministry can be described as Emmanuel or God with us. Not only did Jesus fulfill that prophecy as the Son of God and Son of Man in the flesh, he also met the requirements of the law by obeying every commandment perfectly. Finally, Jesus' earthly life ended in crucifixion as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he was raised on the third day to show that God's wrath was fully satisfied and all those who are born again and put their faith in him will have his perfect righteousness upon them. Undeserved. The scribe was near in his knowledge, but he will never reach the goal in his obedience. We are together with him in this. And the only means by which we can be reconciled to God is to trust in Jesus and Christ crucified for our sins in order to receive his righteousness, which is freely given to those who repent and believe. Our confession and hope need to reflect the lyrics of this song. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to him belong? Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? What will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah, or praise the Lord, our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess our hope in life and death. But this confession of faith doesn't stop with what we articulate with our mouths or what we write with our hands. This confession of faith translates itself into how we live, and you find that in verses 6 through 9. Moses writes this, And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's look at verse 6 first. And I'm going to ask you a question. What should you keep in your Well, according to scholars, there are 16, 13, 613 commandments in the Old Testament. These could be condensed and categorized to the Big Ten. And then Jesus summarized it to the top two. Love God with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's a good starting place. That's an excellent starting place. How can you live so that you can demonstrate love to God and love to your neighbor. Remember, the Lord is the one. No one else compares. All idols fall by the wayside and will perish. God alone is worthy. Now, how does the will of God, the character of God, and what is pleasing to him get in to your heart? Well, it begins with hearing from him by engaging and bringing in the word of God into your life. It always starts with you before you're able to make disciples and reach others. But then more than just knowing and engaging with God's word, coming to a point of clarity about how you can live it out, is simply then to do it. It's not to do it perfectly, It's not to do it in a way that is just like someone else, per se, but it's simply to say, yes, Lord, and I will live in this way. You know, Pastor Ali mentioned how we are starting a new cohort for baptism membership. You've been hearing about this all month. That's one of the simple ways by which you can do something, that if you have trusted in Jesus, you have repented of your sins and trusted in him for salvation, An easy step, if you haven't been baptized, is to get baptized. Now, I'm not saying that in of itself is necessarily easy, because there should be some wrestling and some thinking and some consideration of what all of this means from Scripture in your life and how you can be faithful and how you can obey. But that's a clear first step from Scripture. And if you're a baptized Christian, you need to join a church, not just because it's the bare minimum or it brings you some kind of cultural edge. It doesn't but it's because you were saved to be now a holy people in Christ as the chief cornerstone, not only of just your life, but of the church family for which you are a brick being built and laid on top. There is no such thing as an individual Christian that lives in fullness of his or her identity without the local church. Now, that doesn't mean that our church is perfect, that we have everything all together. That's why you need to come in and learn and see what we're about, learn about our culture, learn about our vision, learn about what we believe in, the denomination we belong to, how we want to engage and involve you in being a vibrant church of disciple makers. All of that is covered in baptism membership class, but maybe that next step is exactly where you need to go. Instead of being committed to attending, but not being committed to a people. Those are just starting places, but I believe they're essential starting places. 
Because when you are in the context of the family of God, that is when the word of God has color in how it's lived. That is when, when every home, more and more you'll see brokenness at times in the society that we live in, that no home ever has to feel like they're alone. No parent ever has to feel like they're making disciples alone. No single person ever feel like they have no place in the world. And no grandparent or older person or super young person will feel like they don't belong. Why? Because there's a greater spiritual family to which not only can you theoretically say you belong to, but you can tangibly claim that I am in. That is the heart of biblical membership. And if you want to grow as a Christian, you need to join a church. Not because the church has something for you that you can't get somewhere else, maybe, but it's because you need a family. If you search your hearts, I believe many of our deepest yearnings come from the lack of that, or the brokenness in that, or the sins committed within, or our failures, or perceived wrongs, things we wish you could take over and do again. It goes back to your family. In Christ, he gives us a spiritual family to help reconcile and make many of those things right again and honoring to God. You need to be part of one as a Christian. No spiritual orphans here, please. Join our church if this is your church. Let us help you grow. Let us walk with you. Incidentally, something like baptism, something like membership, it becomes a part of what you can remember. It becomes something that you can hang a part of your life on when you look back. That's meaningful. Like a wedding, right? Helps you to remember that two people are married. You don't need a wedding to be married, but there's something special about one, isn't there? But more than that, for the Christian, God calls us to be baptized and follow Jesus and to declare that openly and to be part of a church because we didn't get saved to be alone. We got saved to accomplish God's purposes in this world. He's the boss. We're just blessed. Let's think a little bit more as we go on. Looking at verses 7 through 9, you'll see something about many of these things. Sitting and walking, beginning of the day, end of the day, Signs on your head, things that you can see, areas where you walk through. What ties them all together? This is just ordinary life. Verses 7 through 9 gives a description of what it's like if you just live, and you happen to live somewhere, and you happen to know some people, and kids happen to be in the home of parents. Right? This is normal, ordinary life. Why do I make that point? It's because sometimes we think that what is being described here is meant to be within the arena of the church. That it is the church that teach my kids about how to love God. It is the church that demonstrates to my kids what it means to be obedient. It is the church that teaches. It is the church that babysits. It is the church that cares. It is the church that gives, and I just bring them there. If you look at this description... I'm telling you, it is impossible. There are 168 hours in a week, especially coming off of a pandemic. If we even get you for four, that's pretty good. We're glad to get you for four. That means there's 164 hours 
if you're a parent with children or people in your household for which disciple-making is either happening through ordinary, everyday life, or you're saying, doesn't matter. Let it go. Bring them to church. I want to throw this in to the grandparents too, guys. The context is important. When you have this group of people in Deuteronomy, they have children, but 40 years from the Exodus, they have parents. Many would have been alive to have crossed the Red Sea. See, the parents could talk about it, but you know what I want? I want grandpa to come to my house any time of the day and tell me the glory of the Egyptian chariots being overwhelmed by this water that God has pushed over them while he let us walk through unscathed. I want grandpa and grandma to tell me that. I need them to tell me that. I cannot as a parent ever see it as good as they have lived it. Now, this is not to say that being a grandparent is not being kind and loving and caring, especially nowadays. We know that the parents need to help the grandparents, but don't forsake the simple privilege of the ordinary things of life. Don't teach them a Sunday school lesson, you guys. This isn't church. Just tell them. When anything comes up, tell them a story. Tell them a story from the old times. You sound like, you know, they might know what you're talking about. They might not know what you're talking about. Just tell them a story. Tell them a story of how God is good to you in any ordinary thing. I remember when God did this and we didn't have this. Oh, man, he was so gracious. I remember when I was at church and my teacher used to do this. Or I remember when I read this in the Bible and it just really confused me. And, man, God is so good. See, this Deuteronomy was for everyone with a focal point, certainly, of the parents having the main responsibility in the home. But grandparents, we need you. Grandparents, we want you to walk with the grandchildren. Grandparents, tell your stories. Share your struggles. The beautiful thing about grandparents to a grandchild is that they will never change. It doesn't matter if you age or not. Maybe that's a good thing, right? They will never change. Grandparents never change. You know why? Because the, 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 the eyes that a grandchild sees a grandparent ever since they were a baby to when they grow up, that's always their grandparents. See, children and parents change over the years because children grow up, there is a constant struggle, there's a constant growing, and parents change and children change, and that dynamic grows with how people develop. But grandparents never change. If you think about it, even yourself, some of your fondest memories are with your grandparents, and you probably have the same type of relationship with them now. Might not be perfect, but those are your grandparents. This is the all hands on deck. And I think when we can see how this is not just about the parents, but it includes the extended family, then all of a sudden, we start thinking broader about the spiritual family. You're like, oh, wait, it's not just my kid, or not just their kid. What, what can I do to tell them about the goodness of God? What can I say? How do I get involved? How can I serve? How can I grow? How can I be trained to work with children, to work with students, to do intergenerational ministry? Yeah, I'm not related to them, but we are one in the bond of love. We're Christians. We're the eternal family. Every earthly bond will break outside of Christ. 
we are an eternal family that will never break in Christ. So there's a place for everyone to engage in disciple-making, even if they're much younger, even if they're not your own blood, but we cling to the blood that unites us in Jesus Christ. Now, these ordinary things, they need to be intentional, but you know what? If you make it less of a big deal, but more actually ordinary, of just showing love to God and thinking through things and then sharing with your children and walking with them and being patient with them and demonstrating the love of God towards you, towards them, then that's a wonderful place to start so that they can see that you are a work in progress, much, uh, much as you are encouraging them to be in the hands of a good and faithful God. That's all it takes just to be intentional. Studies have shown that the behaviors in the home and the culture that we set are just key. If in the home we are one way towards our relationship with God and towards church and towards ministry and and towards the hard questions in the Bible and we just kind of relegate that to the few hours of church, that compartmentalizing, that's noticeable to the children. And it doesn't mean that every single parent, every single grandparent, every single relative has to be perfect in their walk with God. Nobody is. But it's about the struggle. It's about whether you're going to continue to engage in that struggle of disciple-making. And every little thing does make a difference because there's one thing that your kids are, is that they're super sharp. All you guys, super sharp. You know what your parents love, you know what they don't love. They don't have to tell you, or they could tell you the other thing, but you know the truth. How you live matters a whole lot. And that's why verses 7 through 9 points to very ordinary things. So where's our hope then? Because maybe we think, oh, transformation comes from something amazing that we could do or something like just so earth-shouting that they remember. Well, yes and no. All we can do is point them to Christ. We can't do much more. All we can point them to the goodness of God, much like Moses is reminding the Israelites in Deuteronomy, the goodness and the faithfulness of our one and only God. Keep believing in him. Keep your covenant with him. That's all Moses can do. You don't know the fruit. You don't know the results. And you know why? It's because every conversion, every person that comes to faith in Christ is a miracle of God. You cannot plan it. You cannot schedule it. You cannot teach them well enough so that they are guaranteed to repent and believe and trust in the same God that you do. That's frustrating, isn't it? What's all that work for? What's all these years of church for and ministry and everything else? What's all that for? Well, it's for the glory of God. He's the one that causes people to be born again in the power of his Holy Spirit. We can't control anything. It's like the wind that comes and goes, the Bible says. We can't call the shots. We can't contain it. We can't make sense of it. All we can do is do our part. And that's what you find in Deuteronomy. Moses wasn't calling for results. Moses was calling for an engagement to a process. Point to God, make him first in everything, and everything that you do, that's it. That's you doing your part. 
the more you realize that everything you do can fall short, the more then you grow nearer to God because you know what you start doing? You start praying for a miracle. And you start praying for that miracle every single day. It makes you work harder, but you pray for that miracle even more because it is outside of your hands. But God is still good, and you believe it. Coming back to the story about Tony Valentine Carter, his motivation to pay it forward is this complete random generosity of people he's never met. Now, will he pay it forward perfectly? Probably not. I mean, they gave him this money for him to use. No one's going to say you have to give it all away. I mean, it's for him. It's his money. But you know what will motivate him to keep working towards generosity and faithfulness to that desire to pay it forward? It's gratitude and love. That is what Moses wanted the Israelites to remember what God has done. You don't deserve it. He's so faithful. I'm still around. I'm not going to go across with you, but I'm still here right now, and I need you to know this, so that when you cross and you settle, that you will continue to trust in this God. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has cast a crimson stain, but we are washed white as snow. The big idea for today is that renewal in the home happens when our growing love for God is made contagious to those nearest to us in words and actions daily. It certainly begins in the home, and it is the call and the mandate for parents for all of us to be faithful, but the results are in God's hands, and we're just called to live out a life loving and pursuing God. You point to God, he does the rest. You point to God, he shapes your habits. You point to God, he changes your desires. And may that catch on with your children as well. I want to close with this quote from John Piper in a sermon that he preached in 2018. He describes the connection between this renewed relationship with God that then leads to a different life. He said this, from this new gladness, comes new godliness. From new prizing comes new praising. From new delights come new duties. From new desires come new disciplines. From new happiness comes new habits. From new preferences come new purchases. From new contentment comes new kindness. From new cherishing comes new charity. From new pleasure comes new patience. From new satisfaction comes new sexual purity. From new cheerfulness to new faithfulness. From new treasuring comes new tenderness. From new joy comes new justice. From new rejoicing comes new risks for what is right. From new savoring in soul comes new sweetness on the tongue with our spouses. From new life in the heart comes new love in the hand. Brothers and sisters, please talk about 
the love of God everywhere you are, especially in your home. Let's point to him because he is the one and he is everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, for reminding us, Lord, that you are truly the one that deserves all the glory and praise and honor and anything that we can endeavor to do. Father, may we be like the Israelites. Instead of looking at what we are not doing, that we can look to your miraculous intervention in our lives. We pray, Father, that you would help us to renew the joy of our salvation. We pray, Father, that you would help us renew the vows of our marriage. We pray that you would help us to renew where we find our validation. As parents, as grandparents, as individual disciples of Jesus Christ, Lord, that we would find our validation in the work of Christ and the goodness of God. We thank you, Lord, that even though we do not deserve your kindness, your abundant kindness has led many of us to repentance. And we ask God that we will repent even more today so that we would taste and see that you are good. Be with us as we sing. Remind us, Lord, that it is Christ and Christ alone that saves and it's Christ and Christ alone that will change the hearts of our children. Help us to put all of our hope in that simple fact. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.